That's right. I'll, I'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for your faithfulness and that you're the great promise keeper, that you're not only the one who created all things, the one who sustains all things, but you're the one who's going to finish all things. And we pray, Lord, as we look at these wonderful truths in the book of Revelation, that you would enable us to persevere into that day, that you return for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, dear ones, last time we left off last week talking about the different views regarding the rapture and the timing of the rapture, and I had laid out for you why I thought the post-trib, the mid-trib, and the pre-wrath views were deficient. Now, as I say that, a lot of us can have a lot of commonalities with people who obviously have different rapture positions. That's not that critical, but today... As we look at the different views regarding the millennium, this is a bigger issue. And the reason why I think the millennium is a bigger issue is because it really relates to whether or not God keeps his promises. I think the premillennial position is the only position that really maintains God keeping his promises that he's made. If we don't hold to the premillennial position, we're going to have to say at some point, God didn't literally keep his promises, he spiritually did so or he did so figuratively or idealistically or something to that effect. So with that, let's look at the various millennial views, and we're going to be filling in this timeline as we go. So the millennial kingdom, let me pull up my pointer. Remember, this diagram, again, is the 70th week of Daniel. So if you think about our diagram here on the screen, this would be the church age. At some point, we're going to have the parousia of Christ, which is synonymous with Daniel's 70th week. Well, after that is established Christ's 1,000-year reign, his millennial kingdom, where he is going to bodily reign from Jerusalem as his headquarters, and he will reign over the earth. And all the promises that we see in the Old Testament will be fulfilled. For example, remember in Isaiah 2, the nations will flow to Mount Zion, the swords will be beat into plowshares, the spears into pruning hooks, and the nations will no longer learn war anymore. Today, The very hope that the Marxists have that you and I are often contending with is that they are going to bring peace to earth. In fact, remember, they're the ones who have the peace symbol, right? They love their peace symbol. Well, they're going to bring peace, so that's why they don't believe in funding a military or they don't like the police. But we know that peace only comes when the Prince of Peace comes, the Lord Jesus Christ, to establish it. So that's what he's going to end up doing. Now, let me lay out the various views of the Millennial Kingdom um, oh, before that, I'm going to mention the white throne judgment. I mean, I'll, I'll go through this one last time. The white throne judgment is a judgment only for believers, excuse me, only for unbelievers that occurs after the 1,000-year millennial kingdom. Okay, so that's where this is going to happen. That's the white throne judgment that we read about in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Okay, but let's talk about the different views of the millennial kingdom. Let's get them down. Premillennial. That's what we are here at Gospel of Grace. And again, I think it's a very important view to hold to. Why? Well, the premillennial view says this. The pre, the prefix on here, suggests that Jesus Christ returns prior to it. So Jesus Christ returns in his parousia, which is synonymous with the 70th week. Remember, parousia is the technical term for his coming. And then he establishes this 1,000-year reign. The amillennial view says there is no 1,000-year reign. In fact, watch closely on the screen. The amillennial view would say that this reign is spiritual through the church during the church age. So there is no literal 1,000 years. So in the amillennial view, you simply have the church age, 
You have Jesus' return in judgment against the nations. A resurrection for believers and unbelievers happens simultaneously, and you go right into the eternal states. That's how the amillennialists view things. Okay, now, why do they do that? Well, one of the reasons they do so is because in John 5, remember Jesus gives a summary statement that's, that in one, and he, what he mentions is that there's going to be a day coming when you have both the righteous and the unrighteous who are going to be raised up. So what they do is they take that summary statement and they say, aha, there's only going to be one resurrection. So therefore, they read that into the book of Revelation and they try to claim, well, you can't have two bodily resurrections when John says, blessed is he who is part of the first resurrection, for the second death has no power over them, they have to spiritualize that. And I'll show you the problem with that in just a moment. But that's where they, I think, start off on the wrong foot. They also don't like to see the promises that God gave to Israel. They don't believe that those are going to be literally fulfilled. They believe that the church is now Israel, spiritually speaking. And what's interesting is Bob and I, as we've taught verse by verse through different books of the Bible, there are times where the church is likened to Israel. We wouldn't question that. In fact, there are a lot of times where unbelievers are likened to the Gentiles. That, that imagery is true. However, we should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. There are still literal promises for a literal established Israel, ethnic national Israel in the future, we see that in Romans eleven twenty six. Remember, that's where Paul said, all Israel will be saved. And we've proven many times that all Israel there cannot be every believer, Jew and Gentile. It must be national ethnic Israel. Why? Well, because nine times prior to that verse in Romans 11, Paul used Israel for national ethnic Israel. And what's more, in Romans eleven twenty eight, he says they're enemies of the gospel for your sake. Well, how can every believer, Jew and Gentile, if that's all Israel, how can they be enemies of the gospel? So certainly, we know that all Israel has to be national ethnic Israel in Romans eleven twenty six. Okay, let me show you another view. That's the post-millennial view. The post-millennial view says this. They're very optimistic. They're very optimistic about who you and I are and about all believers. They believe that we're going to Christianize the planet. And that what happens is Jesus Christ, think about this time period, we Christianize the planet, and then Jesus comes post, at the end, to simply take the reins of a kingdom that you and I have created. This is a very popular view in the 1800s, that's the 19th century, prior to World War I. World War I dashed the belief in human goodness, which I think really is necessary for post-millennialism. Now, just off the top of your head, what's the problem with post-millennialism? Well, read the book of Revelation. Things aren't going to get better. We're not going to Christianize the planet. In fact, Jesus said in his Olivet Discourse that if those days had not been cut short, no flesh would survive. The warfare is going to be so bad, and there's going to be such persecution that unless Jesus Christ returned, nobody would survive. So far from the data suggesting that we Christianize the planet and we head for this utopian age of peace through our own efforts. No, we're heading towards death and destruction, and it's only Jesus Christ's personal intervention that prevents all human beings from being wiped out. Yes, Brian. I can't remember the, the verse here, but you'll know. Isn't there 
what's the Old Testament prophecy where, where Jesus will reign from the uh, throne of David yeah. during the millennial period? So uh, how do they, what do they do? What, what do post-millennial believers, how do they uh, deal with verses like that? Absolutely. So that one you're thinking of is Ezekiel 37, 25, and David will be their king and he will reign over them and they will reign upon, they will dwell in the land. And it says forever, um, Olam, you know, unto eternity. So that, that's Ezekiel 37, 25. And that's just one of many passages that suggests that that's, the Messiah is going to reign in their midst. And that's what they're referring to. And they refer to David, they're referring to the greater David. So here's what the, the reform tradition typically does, the replacement theologians they will replace that promise given to Israel with the church. So the idea then is that because you and I believe in Jesus, Jesus is reigning with us in a spiritual sense. So when you and I die, we go to be with him, which is true, and we're reigning in that sense. But it's not a literal topographical rule where Jesus is ruling with Israel from Jerusalem or uh, anything like that. So they spiritualize it. The church is now Israel. Yeah, that's what they do. Bob, do you have anything to add to that? Well, they have a, this thing they call the Dominion Mandate. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bring that up. In fact, that was okay. your first CIC article you ever did. Well, no, my first CIC was on binding and loosing. Oh, I'm sorry. But uh, <laughs> Shows you. although I do deal with some of the issues there, yeah, I have a, under CACministry.org, go to Scholarly, and you can find an article on the Reconstruction Movement. Oh, it was the scholarly section. The, okay. It's in the scholarly in the Dominion Mandate, which started out as a seminary paper. That's what it was, yeah. That I wrote. Now, they start in Genesis yeah. for their claim, and they take the passage that gives Adam dominion over the created earth. Right. And they assume that that means that uh, Christians have dominion over other people who aren't Christians. Right, right. Okay, so in my article, and these are scholars that write this. I mean, to us it sounds absurd. Frankly, it is. But these are real serious people with a lot of degrees that are writing the articles about this dominion mandate. Right. So in my article... um, I just do some exegetical work and interact with their claims and show that this is not the case, that humans have dominion over the non-human creation doesn't imply that Christian humans have dominion over non-Christian humans. Exactly. Or that we're supposed to take over the powers of the government and force everybody to obey the law of Moses, but they start in Genesis, and then they kind of end in Matthew 28, uh, where the Great Commission sends out yeah. uh, the disciples. Right, right. And again, they use some, uh, I think, very, very shady as exegetical work yeah. to find the Great Commission to be a command to subjugate all other peoples. Yeah. And to take rulership over the nations. Well said. For Christ. So, anyhow, I refute that in a, in a scholarly argument. Frankly, yeah. there's just no... I don't know how somebody can be so smart 
<laughs> and get all those degrees. Yeah. And swallow a camel. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> because your typical, you know, Bible school or any just any Christian reading the Bible would read Matthew 28 and not think, oh, I'm supposed to go defeat the government of whatever nation I'm in right. and set up a Christian rulership over it. Right, right. But frankly, they gained some uh, comfort from church history because that's what Rome tried to do. Yeah. And you will notice this now when you go into your next Yeah, bunch when we of get to talk about Calvin, yeah. Yeah, be very, very careful about any theology is gleaned only from church history. Right, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing to me how people think, there, that settles it because, and then they go to creeds and councils from church history. Right. Or even ones that are Roman Catholic. Listen, do we or do we not believe in the authority of Scripture in the priesthood of every believer? Amen. Amen. Do we believe that inerrant Scripture was given by God's apostles and prophets with Christ being the cornerstone or do we think that somebody 200 years later, 300 years later, 500 years later 1500 years later somewhere they got it and we got to obey what they said. Right, right. And then they say, because I, I debated them and they say, well, who do you think you are? Yeah. <laughs> who do you think you are? So you know more than all these great fathers and uh, uh creeds and councils of the church that stood the test of time for decades and centuries. And what's wrong with you? Yeah. And I'm saying, no, I'm not claiming that somebody should obey me or that I have better doctrine than the, the biblical writers. I'm claiming that according to our doctrine of the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer and the fact of the perspicuity of Scripture means that anybody at any era of history yeah. can go back to the very beginning and find out what God said. So if you want to know what Matthew 28 means, go to Matthew and read the Great Commission and put it in context and see what the apostles thought about it. And don't go to Rome and see what they thought. Right, amen. Oh, the, or uh, who was it? By this, was it Constantine? By this yeah. sign, conquer? Right, right. Oh, there, there's our proof. Yeah. No, that's not proof. None of these people saw the resurrected Christ. Yeah, None of these people were appointed by Christ. None of these people were spirit-inspired writers of Bible. And none of what they said is binding on the church, only if it does agree with what was taught clearly in Scripture. Amen. And I Amen. spent eight years in seminary debating on this, and it's amazing how I was always in the minority. Yeah. In so many cases. Yeah. Bob, you and I have seen so many times, when I was in seminary, you would have a history professor, and they would deem something valid if it was ever done in church history. So no matter what the act was done, if it was done in church history, it was a valid practice. Well, what happened to sola scriptura? Scripture being the final authority of whether something's valid. And by the way, as Bob is talking about this, this is a debate that you often see in reform circles. Think about it. You have some reformed that are amillennial. Then you have those that are post-millennial. And as damaging as amillennialism is, postmillennialism is even more damaging. Let me give you an example. Years ago, Bob had given me a book called Hellfire Nation. And one of the interesting facts is that because postmillennialism was so rampant 
in the 1700s and 1800s, you had a lot of people who believed that the United States was going to be a new Israel. They believed that. And what Bob and I have shown exegetically is, no, there's one nation that was Israel. Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10, you can jot that passage down. Every other nation is regarded as a pagan nation given as an inheritance to the divine council. But there was one nation, according to Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10, that belonged to God, and that was the covenant nation Israel. That's it. Um, if, If God ever made a covenant with America, let's ask ourselves, where was that found in Scripture? Well, it wasn't. You would think that you would read that if something that's significant. If God enters into a covenant with somebody, you'll see that in Scripture. Well, what happens in history in America is you'll have people who think, well, America is the new Israel. Well, who are the Canaanites then that have to be driven out? Well, it's the Native Americans. So the Native Americans are the Canaanites. We drive them out. We're going to set up this glorious kingdom. Er, failure. That's not what we are. We are not, as Americans, the new Israel. What you and I are, are believers in Jesus Christ who have fled to the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And we live in a wonderful country, a country that has afforded us all sorts of freedoms because many people that founded it had at least a theistic worldview or a deistic worldview. They had a a belief that there was at least God. So we have some wonderful freedoms, and this is a great country, but we're not Israel. So we have to keep that straight. So let's talk about um, amillennialism. I want to just refute this for a moment. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. And remember, Dana did a wonderful job at exposing the falsehoods of amillennialism and showing us why premillennialism is indeed biblical. So I don't remember how many uh, Sundays that took you, Dana. Was it three? Oh, five. It was five. Okay. So there's five section series in the series that we're covering in Revelation where Dana did that. So you can look that up to get even greater information. But let's look at kind of the core passage in Revelation 20 that talks about this a thousand year reign. Uh, it's in Revelation 20 verses four through six. And I just want to make a few points that I think will show the absurdity of amillennialism. Revelation 20, starting in verse four, John says, then I saw thrones. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. I remember in Revelation 19, Jesus came back. He destroyed the enemies that were surrounding Jerusalem. So Jesus has returned, and that's the end of the 70th week. So Revelation 19 in the timeline is right here. So we're reading in Revelation 20 about events that are occurring here on the timeline. So John says, then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, let's just stop there. What does the amillennialist do with that phrase, they came to life? Well, they do one of two things. First, many of them believe that that coming to life is a spiritual resurrection. That's what they'll say. Now, what do they mean by a spiritual resurrection? It means that someone comes to faith, that they spiritually leave the domain of darkness and they become partakers of the kingdom of the beloved son. It's conversion. Now, what's the problem with believing that this coming to life is spiritual, someone leaving unbelief and becoming a believer? Well, if you notice in verse 4, Those that John is referring to here 
they were martyred because of their faith. That's the whole reason they were put to death. So it can't be them coming to faith. It can't be coming to life as them coming to faith. Why? Because they already had the faith. That's why they were put to death. So it's an absurd reading. They're reading into the text something that's obviously not true. Now, the second thing that I'm millennialist, and one that in particular holds to this view is a man named Anthony Hokma. He was a Reformed scholar from the Grand Rapids area. And what he taught was that this resurrection or this coming to life were Christians reigning in the heavenly places. The problem with that, though, is notice here it says that they were beheaded because of their testimony. Now, the term there, beheaded, is pelikizo. Pelikizo has to do with a physical beheading. You're physically put to your, your head is lopped off. You're dead. So if you read in context that someone is physically killed by being beheaded, and then they came to life, would you expect that to be something spiritual or physical? Well, you expect it to be physical, don't you? Okay. Now, the other problem that I have with Anthony Hochman's assertion that this coming to life is merely the fact that Christians will reign with Christ in heaven, while that's true, that happens immediately upon our death. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We're not waiting for some resurrection. So let's say, Lord forbid, you, you go to meet your maker tonight. You die. At death, your body goes to the ground, but your separation, your soul goes to be with the Lord instantaneously. You're not waiting for some future event for that to occur in the eschatological time frame. In other words, there are Christians today that will breathe their last and they will go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. So John certainly isn't referring to that because he's referring to an event that happens in time. He's referring, obviously, to a physical resurrection. Now, this becomes even more obvious when you read the rest of verse 5. Keep reading verse 5. Now he's talking about the rest of the dead. These would be unbelievers. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Now, let's just stop there. Where is that on our time frame? So now John is saying, well, the rest of the dead, which are unbelievers, they don't come to life until after the thousand years. Well, that's right here. Well, what happens right there? Well, that's our white throne judgment. And that judgment is only for unbelievers. So let me just stop for a moment. Remember, what's the problem with amillennialism? Amillennialism, when they read John 5, and Jesus talks about a resurrection of both the living and the dead, the believers and the unbelievers, they say, aha, there's only going to be one resurrection. It has to be right here. Right? That's what they believe. There's going to be one resurrection. They don't realize that the data suggests, yes, there's going to be a resurrection, but it's actually divided into two parts. There's going to be a resurrection for the believers, and there's going to be a resurrection for the unbelievers. So in John 5, he's just simply giving you a summary. Just like when Bob and I give our gospel. We, we say repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because there's a day that he's coming where he's going to bring salvation for his people, but judgment upon his enemies. Now, none of you come up to me after the sermon and say, Eric, you're saying that the judgment for the believers and the unbelievers is going to happen all in one day? That refutes everything that you've already told us. You know that we're summarizing. In the same way, that's exactly what Jesus was doing in John chapter 5. So John here, now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he's penning the book of Revelation, is giving you the details and filling the rest of it out. So now you see that the summary statement Jesus had is filled out with many details. 
There's a chronology involved. Okay. Now, Bob, do you have something to just, add? Uh, uh, not a lot, but just yeah. this is not special pleading, which they would say. Oh, exactly. And I'll tell you why. Because you see the same thing with the first advent. Absolutely. Okay. So, uh, for example, Messiah will be son of David, right? Yeah. Okay. Matthew claims that right away in his Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Right. Son of Abraham, son of David. Yeah. Well, what is son of David going to do? Right. Reign on the throne. Amen. Isn't David a king? Yeah. Okay. So if Jesus is claimed to be the son of David, but yet when he came in the first advent, he, he was rejected. Yeah. Uh, we have no king but Caesar. We don't want him. Right. We will not have this man rule over us. Right. His despised, rejected of men, men of sorrows acquainted with grief. Isaiah fifty-three. Yeah. Well, the the king, the Davidic king part, is now happening in heaven. Right. Psalm one ten, and it's going to happen as you're seeing in the future. Yeah. So you can't just say exactly. Uh, well, you're making oh, Eric, you're making too many categories here. Right, right. Well, you can say the same thing about the first advent. Well said. There's more categories than they thought there was going to be, exactly. and that's why they were offended. That's right. If you're the king of, if you're the son of David, then get on that throne. Yes. And show us. Right. Amen. Well said. Yeah. So the average Israelite reading his Old Testament, they read it and they see when Messiah comes and he's going to reign on his throne. So as Bob is pointing out, they see just one event. They don't realize that it's going to be two events. The first advent, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, comes to suffer. And his second advent, and we still don't know when it's going to be. It's going to happen. But it's almost been 2,000 years removed now. When he returns a second time, it's to reign. So for them reading the Old Testament, it seems like just one event, a summary event. But it's not. There's details involved. Revelation, the beautiful thing that we have in Revelation is the details are revealed to us. That we see, yeah, there's going to be a resurrection of both the unregenerate and the regenerate, but they have happen at different times and different events. Yes, Ryan. Yeah, so just a question. Maybe it's just the ESV translation here, yeah. verse 5, but it says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. That's referring to verse 4. Yes, What's exactly. there in verse 5 is the second resurrection. Exactly right. So in verse 4, when you have those who are beheaded who come to life, they're part of the first resurrection. And I like to think of it more of as a qualitative issue. It is chronological, but it's also a qualitative issue. Why? Well, because we believe that there's a resurrection of all believers here. I think we can prove that. But the idea then is after, you're going to have people who come to faith during that time period, and then they're going to be raised up as well. In fact, that's the promise given, for example, in Revelations chapter 6, where you have those who are beheaded because of the faith. And remember, they demand justice right away. Well, they're told to wait. Okay, they're told to wait. And well, now you see why. In Revelation 20, they're going to be raised up as well. So I would say everyone who's part of the rapture and who's given a resurrection here, that's part of the first resurrection. And you probably will have another one sometime in the millennial kingdom. Why? Because you'll have people who come to faith, I would imagine. I, now, we don't have data. I'm just surmising there will be people who come to faith in the Messiah during that time period. And they'll probably be part of the first resurrection as well. So, yeah, I'm sorry. Then you had some. Oh, Dean, I had something. Another problem with the postmillennial view yeah. is that the scriptures teach that this coming to life, this first resurrection, will happen at the beginning of the millennium. 
Yes. Whereas yeah. if, if it's conversion, well, that doesn't all happen at the beginning of the millennium. It happens throughout the church age. So. Well said, yeah. It would be a progressive thing, right. not a punctiliar thing. Yeah, well said. No, very good. Excellent. Now, um, one thing I want to point out, too, regarding this resurrection is notice here this reigning with Christ that's referred to. If, does everyone see it? In, uh, it says that they reigned, I think it's in verse 4. Yeah, it says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. And it says at the very end of verse 4, And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. What's very interesting is the amillennialist will say, Well, that's reigning with Christ in heaven. But turn your Bibles back to Revelation 5.10. It's very important because this is a promise. We want to be good readers of the book of Revelation. Where was the promise that believers are going to reign? Revelation 5.10. And um, Brian, would you mind reading that for us? You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our gods, and they will reign upon the earth. There you go. The promise all the way back in Revelation 5.10 is that we will reign upon the earth. So this coming to life and reigning with Christ now in Revelation 20 is a fulfillment of that promise. So if they're reigning on earth, how is this a spiritual reign in uh, you know, a Christian absent from their body in the heavenly realm? No, they're going to have to be reigning with Christ from the earth. Now, let's talk about a few other things, and I'm sure Dana probably hit this, but... Let's talk about another evidences, I think two strands that suggest the millennial kingdom must happen. Remember, according to Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 18, please turn your Bibles there, if you will. Zechariah 14, 16 through 18, the nations are going to be forced, and I've mentioned this last week, but let me do it again. The nations are going to be forced to go worship Yahweh on Mount Zion. And if they don't, God won't send rain upon their land. And I want you to consider that when we look at our timeline here, how significant that is for proof of the millennial kingdom. Here's why. Notice it says, verse 16, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king. So let's just stop there for a moment. There's going to be this battle that's talked about in Revelation 14. All the nations surround Jerusalem... The Messiah comes, wipes them out, but there's going to be some survivors, and those who survive of those nations are going to be forced to go up to Jerusalem to worship the king. Now, is that happening now in the church age? Does anybody see the nations being forced to go up and worship Yahweh from Israel? No. Did it happen in 70 AD? Remember, Jerusalem, you might say, well, they sacked Jerusalem. The Romans, they sacked Jerusalem. Well, the Romans won. The Messiah didn't return. And what's more, they weren't forced to go up and worship the Messiah or God on Mount Zion. So what I want you to consider is that this really necessitates the time of the millennial kingdom. Why? Let's think about this for a moment. We know this is the church age here. It's not going to happen here, or it's at least not happening thus far. But we also know that it can't happen, let me just put up the rest of my diagram, it can't happen in the eternal states. Why? In the eternal states, we're all unbelievers. They're in the lake of fire. 
So what unbeliever is going to be able to go up to Jerusalem and worship the Lord? None. They're all in the lake of fire. So if it's not happening here, and it can't happen here, well, when is this going to happen? Well, the millennial kingdom. That's why you have to have a millennial kingdom. Let me give you another one. I know, Brian, I had you look up this passage, Ezekiel 47.8. What's interesting in Ezekiel 47.8, Ezekiel 47 is all about these changes that will occur to the earth as a result of the living waters that flow from Jerusalem. They will be literal living waters that flow from the throne, but they're also symbolic. So we don't have to choose whether they're literal or symbolic. It's both. They're literal waters that will flow as a symbol of life coming from Yahweh, from the Messiah as he reigns, from Jesus Christ. And so in Ezekiel 47, 8, you have even the restoration of the Dead Sea. So read that passage, Brian. This is going to happen in the Millennial Kingdom, but we have to think about it very carefully. Yeah, read uh, Ezekiel 47, 8. Then he said to me, these waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. Then, That's the Dead Sea. Then they go forward, or then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. Yeah, so notice the claim is that the waters of the Dead Sea are going to be made fresh. They will actually be life-sustaining if you keep reading on. They'll end up having fish in them. Now, does the Dead Sea during our age have fish in them? No, it's, it's dead. That's why they call it the Dead Sea. Okay, but it's going to be a live sea when Jesus reigns. Now, here's the kicker. Remember in Revelation 21.1, let's talk about the eternal states. Remember in Revelation 21.1, it says there will be no more sea. So if there's no more sea in the eternal state, it can't happen during that time period, this restoration of the Dead Sea. And it certainly isn't happening now. So what does that leave you with? It has to happen during this millennial kingdom. So the Dead Sea isn't producing life now, during the church age. And it won't, you won't have a sea in the eternal states, therefore what? You must have a millennial kingdom. So these are all evidences, and I know Dana gave many more, that that's why you and I can believe that, yes, this millennial kingdom will literally happen. Now, for those who try to spiritualize this, they'll just say, well, those, those little particulars that you and I are talking about, they just don't matter. Well, to me, they do matter. Because if God promised these things, he is going to literally bring them about. That's what we can be very confident of. Now, let me just talk about post-millennialism really quick and just talk about the absurdity of that. One passage that comes to my mind is, you remember in Luke 18.8? You can jot this one down. It's a great refutation of post-millennialism in a very succinct way. That's where Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, he literally uses the term for coming, will he find faith upon the earth? And the implication of that in Luke 18 is that faith is going to be a very rare thing indeed. Very rare. Well, how can that be the case if post-millennialism is true and you and I Christianize the planet? What's more, yeah, Eric. Was that, was that Luke 18? Yes, okay. Luke 18. I just want to make sure I got that. Yeah, so you. he asked the question, will he find faith on the earth? And also I want you to think again of Matthew 24, verses 21 through 22. And by the way, that's on your handout. Remember there, Jesus talks about the 70th week of Daniel. And he says, remember, unless those days be cut short, no flesh would survive. Well, that certainly can't be a Christianizing of the planet and bringing peace through human effort. In other words, things aren't going to get better. Things are going to get worse. 
So dear ones, I just say all these things to show you that amillennialism and postmillennialism, I don't think have anything going for them biblically. Yes, Christy. Yes. People don't have them. Oh, I'm sorry. Here gotcha. For after. Yep. Thank you. I'm sorry. I forgot about that, Christy. Um, Christy was so kind. I wrote up a bunch of the definitions and passages per Peter's excellent request last week. And so I have them for you on the table there. And you can get them. And what's so nice is Christy was able to fit them all on one sheet. And so you'll be able to fold it and put it in your Bible. And that way you'll have it. And so it'll give you all the things that we've covered in this summary section. You'll basically see that and the, the different biblical references. Okay, so with that, let's put this all together. Let's put our timeline together and let's just follow this through. Right now, you and I are living in this time period called the church age. How long will that last? We don't know. The 70th week of Daniel can occur at any moment. That's the parousy of Christ. And the beginning of it is the rapture of the church. The rapture of Jesus Christ happens like a thief. The day of the Lord comes like a thief. Why can both come like a thief? Well, they happen at the same time coterminously. If one preceded the other, one would cease to be a thief. So the rapture of the church begins the day of the Lord, known as the 70th week of Daniel, and you have God's wrath poured out. So Jesus Christ comes for the church here. At the end of the 70th week, he comes with the church And he sets up his 1,000-year reign from Jerusalem, in which living waters really will flow. The Dead Sea will really have life in it again. You really have peace among the nations. The swords will be beaten to plowshares, spears, and to pruning hooks. The nations will be forced up to go to meet and worship the Lord in Jerusalem, after which time you're going to have another rebellion. This final rebellion is in Revelation chapter 20, where you have all of the nations gather once more against Messiah in Jerusalem. Why do they do that? I think it's God's way of showing that the issue isn't our environment. The issue is us, the sin nature. Jesus Christ calls down fire. He wipes out all of his enemies. And then what what does he do? He brings them to the white throne judgment. That's the white throne judgment right here, where this is a, a judgment only for unbelievers, and they will be judged by their works, and they'll be sent to hell. We have then the establishment of the eternal states, a new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem that only believers will be enjoying while unbelievers are in the lake of fire. And so the day of the Lord goes from here all the way through eternity. The day of the Lord begins at the inception of Daniel's 70th week. And the moment that occurs, when Jesus Christ breaks through the clouds to rapture you and to bring you home, you're forever secure. You're forever going to be given your resurrected body. I'll be right with you. And from then on, all the enemies of God get wrath. They get wrath, 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 wrath. And some may survive. Some may, um, as the bold judgments and the seals and all those things, they may survive and they may repent. They may come to faith and they may become believers. But at a certain point in the eternal states, things are fixed. There's no longer any chance. You're going to have believers that are reigning with Christ in all of the privileges with the new heavens, the new earth, and new Jerusalem, and you're going to have the unregenerate in the lake of fire. And that's considered to be the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord extends into eternity. So the wrath of God is eternal, and our salvation is eternal. Yes, it begins at a point in time, but it goes on into eternity. Yeah? Uh, I'm just curious. You're talking about like a first and a second resurrection. 
Yeah. Well, then the second resurrection, does that happen after the millennial period, or when does yep. that... that? That'll happen right here at the white throne judgment. And so that's when the rest of the dead, they come to life, and that's when they come before the throne. And God opens, interestingly enough, you can read about this in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, he opens the book and he judges them according to their deeds, according to their works. And all of their works will be deficient. Why? Because all of ours are. All right, so, but they're going to be judged according to those things, and then they'll be sentenced to the lake of fire. Yep, so that's where that occurs. So that's the second resurrection. As Ryan was pointing out, you have the first resurrection here that's finished, and you have the second resurrection right here chronologically. Yeah, Eric. Well, I'm sorry. Oh, I guess I always thought that it was like God the Father on the great white throne judgment. Absolutely, but, yeah. I think but then when I was just, we were looking around in John, and I saw John 4, 22, the, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Yep. So, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus does do it on behalf of the Father, but the Father isn't absent from it. The entire Trinity should be seen involved with it. However, the Son is given the prerogative. And that's why, as Bob mentioned earlier, Psalm 110.1, um, sit at my right hand. Remember the, the Lord? Literally, it's Yahweh said to my Abonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the idea is that Messiah is going to reign in heaven at the right hand of God until... It's time for him to put all of his enemies down. And then he's going to reign. Um, so, yeah, the Messiah is reigning and is going to be judging on behalf of God the Father. So what he does, the Father does. Um, in fact, remember the great promise in Philippians that one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, right? So whatever the Son does, he does it on behalf of the Father. And you're right, all right to rule and to judge was given to him. But with that, that doesn't mean that the Father is absent from the process or the throne as well. Yeah. So does that help? Very good. No, very good question. Yeah, excellent. So, okay. So with that, I hope that's all clear. Now, I want to try to see if we can finish this all up. I want to talk about the importance of now and the idea. Of, and by the way, I don't, I don't want to cut anybody off if anyone had anything, but I'll just keep moving on here. What I want to do is just read the rest of these passages and make some comments on them, and hopefully we'll close this out. Revelation 22, 11 through 12, what we have a reference to now is something that occurs in the eternal states. It says, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Now, for a moment, let's just focus on verse 11. Notice, it's very strange, it's, this idea to us, well, let the one who is wrong still be wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. We say, wait a minute, that seems kind of counterintuitive for us Christians who always want to call people to repentance and to faith. Well, remember, this is written in the eternal states. And what John's point is, is that in the eternal states people's eternal destiny is fixed. There's not going to be a time where they can change. Why? Because all unbelievers are in the lake of fire. All believers have already been given their reward and they're reigning with God. Now, saying that, remember Hebrews 9.27. Write that passage down. It's very important, especially when you're giving the gospel to people, uh, people who don't believe in a, an eternal judgment that's coming. Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed once for a man to die, after that comes judgment. 
So realize the moment a person breathes their last, their destiny is fixed at that point. So all of this is moot for the individual who's certainly not going to live that long. Every single human being, because we are mortal, we have to be moral. (laughs) In other words, we have to come to faith in Jesus Christ. If you breathe your last, your destiny is fixed. That's what we have to know. But that's what he's referring to here in Revelation 22, 11. He's talking about a period of time in the eternal states. Um, Remember Paul said, today is the day of salvation. He says that in 2 Corinthians 6. He's referring to Isaiah 49. And the idea is that during the church age, that's today. Today is the day to come to faith. Today is the day to repent and come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because either you die and your destiny is fixed, or if you're a person who's living during these time frames, if you're in the eternal states, your destiny will be fixed. There's a time that comes when a human being will no longer be able to change. So today is always the day of salvation. And that's, I think, a good application for every human being now. Today is the day. If you have breath in your lungs, repent and come to faith. Flee from the coming wrath and and find the glorious promises that the Lord Jesus Christ is giving for his people. Now, let me talk about verse 12. At verse 12, we come to what's called an ascendetic clause. Now, just let me just break that down. Ascendetic ascendetic clause is something that doesn't have a conjunction. So the way they carry on a discourse in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament is they often give you conjunctions, and. In the, in the New Testament, it's chi, and, 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 this, and, this, and, this. Well, all of a sudden, when you come to an ascendetic clause, it often tells you, wait, there's a paragraph here. There's something new. And the reason we have that here in verse 12 is Jesus Christ is now the speaker in Revelation 22, 12, all the way to verse 19. So notice what he says. He says in verse 12, behold, I'm coming quickly. That term quickly is that famous adverb, takus, which means literally is imminent. It is soon. Now, why is that important? Because remember in Revelation 1, 1, you saw the very same promise that he was coming soon. So Revelation 1, 1 and Revelation 22 bracket all of Revelation with the idea that Jesus Christ is coming imminently. In fact, this idea of Jesus Christ coming soon, it being at hand or imminent, occurs three times in Revelation 22 for emphasis. It occurs in verse 7, here in verse 12, and again we'll read it in verse 20. So again, the whole book is bracketed by the idea of Christ coming soon. Notice also he says that in verse 12 his reward is with him, and he's going to render to every man according to what he has done. Now, the term done there, what he has done, is literally the works as they are. That's how you could render it in Greek. So people are going to be judged according to their works. And you might be saying, wait a minute, I thought we were saved by faith alone. You absolutely are. You are saved because you trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. However, remember, when you become a believer, you're saved unto good works. And so what's very interesting is the unbelievers are always those who are depicted in Scripture as ones who are living out wicked deeds. They're living immoral lives. And so they're going to be judged accordingly. In fact, turn your Bibles to Revelation 20, verse 12. I'll show you evidence of this. Revelation 20, verse 12. This is, remember, this is the white throne judgment. In Revelation 20, 12, these are all unbelievers. And notice how they're going to be judged. 
John says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. They're judged, notice it says, according to their ergon, their, their works. So their works are going to be found deficient. Why? Because every human beings ultimately are. So they will be sentenced to hell. Jesus is the one who said in John 6, 29, this is the work that you should do if you do the work of the Father, that is believe in the one whom he has sent. And if you and I will believe in the one that the Father has sent, the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I are saved then and will end up being those who do good works, works that have been prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, as it says in Ephesians 2.10. Okay, now let's keep moving for the sake of time. Now Jesus describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega, verses 13 through 15. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Verse 15, it says, Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Jesus begins by saying here in verse 13 that he's the Alpha and the Omega. That's used of God the Father in Revelation 1.8 and again in Revelation 21.6. Why is that important? Because you're going to have Jehovah Witnesses who will come to your door and they say Jesus isn't God. Well, here Jesus has the same description given to him as God the Father, the Alpha and the Omega. By the way, Alpha is the first word in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. So notice Jesus reiterates that. He gives you synonymous parallelism right after he says Alpha and Omega. He says the first and the last. Does everyone see that in verse 12? So the first and the last, this is only given to Jesus in the book of Revelation. So if you're reading the book of Revelation, only Jesus is referred to as the first and the last. You see that in Revelation 1.17, Revelation 2.8, Revelation 22.13. However, listen carefully. That same phrase, the first and the last, is used for Yahweh in the Old Testament. In fact, turn your Bibles uh, quickly, if you will, to Isaiah 44.6. I want you to see this because this is a great refutation to the Jehovah Witnesses who come to your door and say, I, we don't believe Jesus is God. Isaiah 44.6, Yahweh is referred to as the first and the last. Isaiah 44.6 It says, thus says Yahweh, the king of Israel and his redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. So notice that's ascribed to God the Father. So who is Jesus? Well, he's not God the Father, but he's God, isn't he? He's Yahweh. And that's why Jesus said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. By Jesus saying that, he was declaring himself to be Yahweh This is evidence that he is, in fact, God. Notice he's also referred to as the beginning and the end. The beginning is the arche. He is the source. And he's also the end, telos. How many in here have ever heard of the teleological argument? Uh, I know Bob has and many of you. um, Telios in Greek has to do with the idea of a goal or design. And so in the teleological argument, we're giving an apologetics. We're saying because there's design... In the universe, there must be a designer. Okay, design presupposes a designer. Think about it. If you're walking along the beach and you see in the sand drink Coca-Cola, 
You don't say to yourself, oh my goodness, can you imagine? What are the chances the waves did that? It happened all by accident. It says drink Coca-Cola. No, you would presuppose that there must have been somebody who designed that in the sand because it's so precise. Well, how much more precise is our DNA code, right? DNA code is far more complex than just drink Coca-Cola. And yet people say, well, that just happened by chance. No, Jesus Christ is the beginning, and he's the goal. He's the one who started all things, and he's the one who's going to perfect all things. There was a famous scholar who comments on the book of Revelation. He says it this way. He says what Jesus is really saying, he says, I am the one who has created the world, and I'm going to perfect it. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus is saying to us in this passage. He is the perfecter of all things. Very similar, by the way, to Hebrews 12, too, that Jesus is both the author and perfecter of our faith. The term author there I love is that term archegos. It's very hard to translate in English. It's much like a trailblazer, like a Lewis and Clark, someone who breaks open new ground. That's who Jesus is. We often think of superheroes. Jesus is the ultimate superhero. He's the one who could do what no other person could do. He's the archegos. He's the beginning. He's the end. He did it all. Now, notice in verse 14, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes. Where do we wash our robes? Is it in the shower, the washing machine? No, it's in the blood of the Lamb. And I won't have you turn to it, but that's what we learn in Revelation 7.14. Remember, there are the multitude of believers who are being martyred out of the Great Tribulation. Well, they were made holy. Why? Because they washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. The moment you trust upon Jesus Christ, your sins are washed away. And you're covered, the imagery is by his blood. And so just as it happened in the Days of Atonement, in Leviticus 16, God would look down on the shed blood and his wrath would be appeased. The image is the Heavenly Father looks down at you and he says he sees the shed blood of his son and his wrath is appeased. That's how you and I stand. The only difference between you and I and the rest of the unregenerate world is that we have the shed blood of the Lamb hiding us from God's wrath. We have his imputed righteousness, a righteousness that was foreign to us, that was given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly enough, you notice I'm talking fast. I'm trying to get through it. we got five minutes. I think I can do it. Verse 15, notice it says, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and immoral persons. Why are they referred to as dogs? Well, dogs, remember, to the Jews are unclean. They're an unclean animal. Yeah, Bob says they're nasty. (laughs) Bob's never been a dog person anyway, right? (laughs) That doesn't bother you a bit, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, they're referred to in Deuteronomy 23.18, if you want to jot that down, as prostitutes in the Old Testament. In Matthew Matthew 15.26, they're referred to as Judaizers. In other words, Judaizers are referred to as dogs. All right, so that's what they're referred to. Um, Philippians 3, 2 through 3, the referred sorcerers are referred to as dogs. Okay, so that's because they're unclean. Now, what about this term sorcery? I want to just talk about that. Those who are sorcerers. That comes from this term pharmakeos, which is where we get our term pharmacy. And in the antiquity, what people would do is they would put themselves in a drug-induced stupor so that they could get into the spirit realm and gain secret information. Information that is not revealed to you either by the general revelation, the creation, or by God's divine revelation. So these are diviners. So what happens to people who try to get information beyond what God has given? People who look at their horoscopes, 
people who practice yoga, meditation, and all of these practices in which they come into contact with the spirit realm, it says they belong where? Outside. They're in hell. That's where they are. So those, uh, when, when you see people looking at their horoscopes, this isn't innocuous. This is vile. This is evil. This is sin against the Lord. They're trying to get secret information. Right away in your mind should come to the passage, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The things that the Lord has revealed belong to us and our children forever, but the things that he has not revealed belong to the Lord alone. Okay, and that carries all the way through both the Old and the New Covenant. One thing I want to point out is this reference to dogs. Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 2, 21 through 22. And the reason I want you to turn there is that I want you to see this, that unbelievers act in certain ways. 2 Peter 2, 21 through 22. Please turn your Bibles there. This, this is very important, this passage, in my opinion, and it's, it's so helpful. A lot of times in your life, you'll, you will see people who seem to be believers. They will make a profession, but later on in their life, through their actions, they will show you that they never had possession. What I mean that is possession of true saving faith. Peter talks about that in 2 Peter 2, 21 through 22, and it refers to them as dogs. Notice regarding these false teachers who seemed to be believers at the time, but later prove that they weren't through their deeds. He says, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. Verse 22, it says, it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. So notice the proverb is again using those unclean animals, the dog, and the sow, the, and the, uh, yeah, sow's a pig, right? <laughs> I'm a city slicker, Bob. Help me out there, yeah. So I'm, I'm right. So you got a dog and you got a pig. Now, the dog, notice when it says it returns to its own vomit. It's kind of gross, but what does it mean? It means the dog just acts like a dog. So the idea in this passage is that these people may have seemed to be believers, but through their actions and their doctrines later in life, they really showed their true colors. That would be a phrase that you and I would probably use. Someone will later show their true colors. That's what Peter is saying. That's why these people are referred to as dogs. Dogs do what dogs do. They return to their own vomit. And that's what happens to the unbelievers. Unbelievers will act out. And that's why when it says they're judged according to their deeds, their deeds will show their unrighteousness. And that's what's being alluded to here. Now, we come to this invitation where Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Notice here, Jesus says that he has sent his angel to testify of these things to the churches, and then he refers to himself as the root and descendant of David. Very succinctly, I believe that that's a reference back to Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. Now, why is that important? I won't get into all the details, but very quickly, Isaiah 11, 1, you see that the Messiah is going to be the, uh, uh, it actually says a twig that comes from the shoot of Jesse. So in other words, he's going to be a human being that comes from David. 
But what's interesting is in verse 10 of Isaiah 11, he is also the source of David. So not only is he the root of David, or I should say the descendant of David, a human descendant, he's also the source of David. That's what I think is being referred to here. All right, so that means Jesus, this coming Messiah, had to be truly God and truly man. He comes from David, human being, but he's the source of David. He's God. That's what he's referred to there. Now, one of the questions people often ask is, why is he referred to as a bright morning star? You, there, the Bible simply using an image that all of you and I are familiar with. When you wake up in the morning, some of you are early risers, you'll often see Venus on the horizon. It's often referred to as the bright morning star. Well, here, Jesus is using that imagery, and he's saying, I'm that. And the idea is when he comes, the age, uh, I should say the day of a new age or a new dawn has come, right? You have the new messianic age. So when he comes, you have this new day in which righteousness is going to prevail and unrighteousness will be forever thrown down. Um, This invitation, it looks like we're out of time. I promise you by next time we will finish this. I want to to spend some time on this invitation. It's, It's actually insightful. And I promise you, next time, I've actually got a whole other PowerPoint set up for our systematic theology. So we're going to begin that. But we'll finish up these verses because I think they're important. We left off in verse 17. And we'll look at that wonderful invitation for salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you've given us these things and that they're clear. We thank you for the perspicuity, the clarity of Scripture, that we can know the promises that we have for us. I do pray, Lord, if there's anyone listening online, Or perhaps there's new here today that hasn't trusted in you. Today would be their day for salvation. That they would repent, trust upon you for their righteousness and atonement. And that they would flee from the wrath to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.